So we begin this morning's teaching um, quoting the wise words of Mrs. Gump, Sr. Life is like a box of chocolates. Fairly well-known saying, whoever coined or wrote those words, genius. It's well-known, well-loved, and a very, very simple line which in many ways could be translated to a modern-day parable. It's filled with all kinds of uh, depth and yet simple that, that, that could be expanded and applied to our lives. And I'm, I'm sure if I'd spent more time researching it, I'm sure the university lecturers have probably spoken on it, that uh, papers have been written about that one simple line. And in many ways, it's a parable. And this morning, as we uh, begin our new topic, we're going to be looking uh, together from now until the end of June. We're going to be looking at the parables that Jesus taught, found only in the book of Mark. And that's what we're going to be delving into over the next number of weeks. And each and every Sunday as we teach, your life groups will then mirror what we teach on the Sunday. So what we speak about here, the life group that you're part of during the week, will just pick up the theme, pick up this teaching, and you get the opportunity to talk about it and delve into it a little bit deeper and, uh, and see uh, how it applies to you and your life. So the parables. I wonder what you know about parables. Turn to the person beside you for one minute and have a chat. What do you know? What do you think you know about parables? One minute. Go. Okay, well, I wonder what it is. As I was exploring it, as I was researching it, I came across this really brilliant video. Uh, The Bible Project is an incredible resource online. Hands up if you've ever heard of the Bible Project. I'm just, brilliant, I'm really encouraged. Hands down. Uh, Please, please go there. It's filled with all kinds of brilliant gems that helps numpties like me learn and understand more about the Bible. So uh, watch this uh, this video really helps us understand more. Master teacher. And some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls. And when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but what does it mean? Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now, there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. 
he said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. And you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right. Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit but those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's gonna punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people, not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right. He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground, but then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. 
Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Isn't that brilliant? So helpful, so clear, so um, helpful to us to understand what a parable is. This, the, these stories that Jesus used uh, to such great effect then, but also for us to read through the gospel writers, for us to read, for us to ponder, for us to understand, and for Jesus to continue to speak new things and new treasures to us. These parables are uh, stories with hidden treasure. They're memorable. They're full of imagery. They're full of intrigue that invites the reader to, to both read but to ponder and to listen and to have those who have ears to hear would, would, would spend time pondering and listening to what God is trying to say. Very often, uh, the parables both then and to us now, as we read them, we're left wondering, what the heck? What, what does that mean? And, uh, and, and, and including today's parable, which we're getting to in a moment, as I'm reading it, I'm going, mm, I think I kind of know what it means, but I'm just not quite sure. And it often requires uh, us to go a little bit further, a bit deeper, to actually understand, to research it, uh, to, to, to read what other writers and people are a bit wiser than us, or knowledgeable of the scriptures to know more about what it means. But also what's so in, um, interesting about it is that Jesus used parables to invite those who have ears to hear to listen to what God's saying to them. And it, he wasn't discreet. He was, sorry, he was discreet. He wasn't really, really open about the bold claims of himself. And he wasn't really, really open about the bold um, uh, statements that he had about the kingdom. Very often, he dressed them up in these things called parables. And so too today. Today's parable, it's two verses. So those of you who are falling asleep already, uh, just waken up because here they are, two verses. And when they're found from Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 2, 21 and 22, and it reads like this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Let's read from a more modern translation, the message. The exact same passage, uh, just from the message translation, much shorter. He went on, no one cuts up a fine silk scarf to patch old work clothes. You want fabrics that match, and you don't put your wine in cracked bottles. So, what do we get from this? What does it mean? What did Jesus' words mean? How did it apply then, and how does it apply, and what does it mean to us today? Well, first of all, let's look at the imagery. He takes two things. He talks about uh, sewing a patch of unshrunk cloth, meaning new cloth. 
you know, a new thing onto an old garment. That's the first thing that he does. And the fabric in those days, cloth in those days, are not like our modern ones today. So basically, you know, a, a new piece of cloth, if you had a hole, I was thinking uh, my last, uh, my, I do have ripped jeans, not because I'm cool, but just because they're getting old and, and I'm not wearing them here. Um, but if I was to put a patch on them of new cloth onto old, what would tend to happen is as the jeans were then washed again, is the new patch hasn't been shrunk yet would begin to tear and pull away at the old cloth. And so Jesus is basically saying, you wouldn't do that. That would be silly to do that. And then the second one is you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins. And the reason being, a wineskin expanded under pressure ferments. So as new wine is being placed into the wineskin, it continues its fermentation process. It's not fermented elsewhere and then put into the wineskin. It's put into the wineskin and it ferments. And as it ferments, as wine ferments, anyone make wine? I'm just interested. My dad used to do that. No, some of you probably do. You're just embarrassed to admit it in, in church. So uh, wine ferments and it begins to bubble and it begins to expand. And so Jesus is saying he's using the literal thing. Nobody would put new wine that takes place, that takes time to ferment into an old wineskin because it would stretch and it would make the old wineskin burst. That is uh, the imagery in its day. We don't use wineskins anymore. None of us are making any wine these days. But clearly in those days, that's the context that Jesus is speaking into. He's using this as story and as metaphor for something. Uh, because clearly there is meaning. Like a lot of trying to make sense of the Bible, um, we need to kind of unpack what it is actually that Jesus is trying to say. We can so often read the Bible and go, nah, I don't really get that. A couple of weeks ago, Jeff McGill spoke brilliantly, and if you weren't there, I would encourage you to watch it. It was super, super good. And, and, and he used this phrase, uh, something like this, when you read the scriptures and there's something that you don't understand, it's probably because God's trying to get your attention. And, and, and God's pointer there is a dig here. Dig here because there's probably treasure to be found. And so as we unpack the treasure from these words that Jesus used, first of all, we need to put it into context. Context of, uh, of when it happened, the cultural context of what was happening at that time. Uh, the context of where and when it happened in Jesus' ministry. But also we need to frame it in the context of where we find it in the gospel. You see, Mark is clever, and Mark's gospel is very unique and different to the other three. Uh, I have uh, read some time ago that Mark's gospel is likened to the Hollywood version of the gospels, not because of the content is, is stuff that the content that we receive and watch through Hollywood, but more so because of its quick, fast-paced uh, flowing. It's like the movie version of Jesus' life. And so as we begin to read Mark's gospel, the first chapter, uh, there's nothing about Jesus' birth. I mean, when it comes to the Christmas story, Mark is not much help at all. Mark begins chapter 1 literally with John the Baptist. 
straight into John, straight into Jesus' baptism by John, straight into um, Jesus calling his first disciples, and then bam, straight off the bat, He's into performing miracles and healing. And that's what we find in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel is declaring what Mark wants us to see and to read and to understand is who is Jesus. 16 chapters, Mark's gospel. I say to new believers and young people who are struggling to read their Bibles, I always point them towards Mark because it's 16 chapters. Half a chapter a day, within a month and a widgy bit, you've got the whole of Mark's gospel cracked. It's where I began when I was 16, 17 years of age. I took Mark, literally, it didn't even have a proper Bible, didn't even have a New Testament. I just had the gospel of Mark. And in that beginning, in that introduction, he, the writer, to us, the reader and the audience, wants us to unpack and understand the question, the answer to the question of who is Jesus and we begin to discover it through the words and the writings that he writes there at that time as he's beginning to perform these early miracles the religious leaders are like who the heck is he and he's there also asking the question who is he and by what authority does he have or come from what authority does he have and in these, uh, in the beginning, in the sorry, in the middle, Mark chapter two, we find these two verses that Mark wants us to read, and it's about Jesus. This parable is about Jesus and about his uh, person and about his personality. Bible tells us Mark one twenty two, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Jesus had come to make the old things. He had not come to make the old things better or to improve on old systems which were falling apart. He came to usher in the rule of God, something that was new to everyone. Jesus came uh, to, to introduce something new, not to patch up an old system. He didn't come as the new patch. It was completely new. He didn't come as old wine. It was new wine into a new skin. This is Jesus demonstrates through the, the, the healing of uh, someone with an evil spirit in Mark 1. Later, Jesus heals many. In verse 40 of chapter 1, he heals a man with leprosy. Then in chapter 2, a paralytic. And we read these things. It's all about making the old. It's, uh, it's all about making old things new or all things new, which culminate at the cross through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus fulfills the, uh, the law of Moses and through his blood ushers in or augments a new covenant, a new promise, a new way of accessing uh, God and knowing God. He's saying, I'm not a patch. You can't stick me on an old garment. You can't fit this new life into old forms. This is all completely new. Jesus traded fasting for feasting, sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness, a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. He turns our mourning for joy and law for grace. Jesus came to introduce something new, not patch up something that was old. 
Do we get it? Do we understand that? That's kind of just the meaning, I guess, of the parable and what Jesus was saying. But how does it apply? How does it apply to us today? Because it's all very well when we read something and we begin, oh, that makes sense. I get that. Thanks very much. But like all of Scripture, there's always an RSVP attached. It's a so what. How does that, what, what, what meaning does that have for us? Well, we could apply it in lots of different ways. But I think uh, for our time this morning, I briefly want to just say, is that we must live in the newness of life. That we must live in the new creation that God has made us into. That we must not live in the old ways. And I sort of spoke about this last week as we came into land last week. For many of us, we go back to fishing. We go back to our old ways. When he who began a good work in you must complete it uh, to, to the finish. COVID, I know I keep talking about it. It's because we're still living out the hangover of COVID. It impacted us hugely, whether we think it did or didn't. And God is doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? Do you not see the new things actually springing up? That's what we need to pay attention to. Uh, Chantelle and I, we were over in Nottingham um, on Wednesday to Trent Vineyard. It was the national leaders, uh, the vineyard leaders gathering there. And we went uh, for the senior pastor day. We ridiculously left the house at 4.15 in the morning and flew out there and came back late, late, late that day. But just had the most tremendous time with the leaders uh, right across the UK and Ireland. And and, and, and one of the things that, that was prayed over us was that God would release the gift of faith. The gift of faith that things will be different. We have settled, I think many of us, and me included, to a mediocre, let's just get on with life, it's tough, isn't it, kind of attitude. It is tough. And the reason it's tough is because we're in a war. We are in a war, whether it's uh, bombs and bullets or not. We are living, all of us, in a spiritual battle. Our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual dark forces that are coming against us. And many of you and me have had dark forces come strongly against us. And it has robbed, killed and destroyed many aspects of our lives. And I know this to be true because right now the Holy Spirit is really nailing you in a really good and helpful way. Because it's uh, through Jesus, the new life, the new birth that gives to us, that's the person that we lean into. And it's not by might and it's not by power, but by his, says the Lord, it's his spirit. It's his spirit that is continually outpoured. The new wine is for today. It's for today into the new skins. But folks, there's many of us, we need to take off the garments of despair. And we need to take the garments of despair off one another. We need to remove it. We need to say, that old way of living that you're living right now is not working. 
and let me help you. Let me journey that with you. Let me point you towards the giver of life. It's only in him and through him that we have life. And Jesus is doing that in our lives. If we would but just say yes. That's all we have to do. Our response to his invitation is yes, Lord. There isn't a person in this room. There is not one person in this room that could hand on heart say, life is rosy in the garden right now. There are struggles. We will have uh, struggles in this life, promises Jesus. But where do we go? To whom will we go? We go to him, the giver of life. And folks, we cannot live in the old ways. We cannot go back to the old ways. We cannot live uh, uh, striving uh, to be good, to be this person. That would be living under the old system, which was known as the law. Jesus came so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Many of us living in the sackcloth and ashes that we've put on ourselves the guilt and the shame and the burden that we carry because, again, we've just believed a lie. We've believed a lie from the enemy that's come and said, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. Call yourself a Christian. You can't do that. Look at you. Pathetic. They're all lies that somehow, drip by drip, we've begun to, to, to believe about ourselves. Um, I don't think I shared this two weeks ago. We're at another vineyard thing the other day. Vineyard's quite a good place, by the way. And, uh, and during this time, uh, a friend of mine from, from of old, uh, Taryn, she leads Catalyst Vineyard Church uh, in Aberdeen. Did I share this story? No, I didn't. Oh, good. I, I've, I've told people. I can't remember when I tell these things. Um, and, and, and it was just during a ministry time. Ministry time, if we don't know, is usually the time in our gatherings when we say, come to the front. Not always to the front, but they're the times when, when we give God opportunity to, to, to meet with us. And I stood and I adopted the prayer position and I just waited. I can't, I can't conjure anything up, nor do I want to. And my friend Taryn and a couple of other guys gathered around me and they laid hands and they just prayed and they just said, come Holy Spirit. And then they began to bless what God was doing. And see, in, it was maybe 10 minutes, God just began and there's more that I know he needs to do in me. He began to unravel a lot of the lies that I was believing about myself. And it was almost like she and the other fellas were skillfully, in the power of the Spirit, were just beginning to just remove this junk that I had picked up and that I was carrying. And afterwards, and like I tell you, there, was, there were a lot of tears from me. And that's just an emotional response of what God's doing. There was a lot of power in that moment as the Holy Spirit came upon me in that way. But Jesus was setting me free. He was setting me free from the things that, I'd, that I had drip by drip 
began to believe about myself. And I know there's more. And I, I look forward to what God will do there. You hear what I've just said? I look forward to what God will do there. Here's the second bit. As I make myself available. You see, every single week, we do three things, four things. We gather together as family, and that's really important that we do that. I love these times together as a church community. We are an incredible community of believers, and I say that truthfully. Many of you are my friends who I love deeply, and I know that you love us and our family deeply, and we're grateful. We, we gather together to worship the Lord. That's the main course. That's the most important thing that we get to do because it's about him. It's to him. It's for him. And that's the second thing that we do. The third thing that we do is we preach a life-changing sermon. You can laugh at that moment. We try to diligently unpack the scriptures in a way that's helpful with some kind of invitation to the fourth thing, and that's that we receive from God. And many of us do not partake in the fourth part of our time together. Many of us are glued to our seats and just want to get out of here. And folks, I understand. I understand. And there's lots of reasons for that. And we will never force people. And Jesus will never force his way upon us. Because Jesus, like me, is a gentleman. We can only invite. And so I say what I've just said with some strength and with some authority. But it's an encouragement. We can only put ourselves in a place and a posture of humility, inviting God to do what only he can do through his spirit. If we want to continue to live the struggling lives that we're living, knock yourself out. But if you want God to impact and to set us free, our role is to make ourselves available. And folks, Sunday at the front isn't the only time. It's not the only place. There's lots of other opportunities, of course, as well. 